0: Hello, and welcome to The Lee Show. As always, I'm Lee. It's nice to be here with you. Last week was Yom Kippur. I fasted. Uh, Fasting is interesting. You know, we, we talked about this like a little bit when we were talking about carbs and the fecal transplants and about how your body uses glucose for energy. Like when you fast, your body has a certain amount of glucose in it, and when you fast, it takes about... 16 hours or so to use up all of that glucose. If you eat something, your body turns that food into glucose and you use that, especially carbs. Carbs are easy to turn into glucose. And when you fast, you burn down that glucose. And then your body, once you run out of that, your body uses something else for energy, it uses ketones, and you burn fat to make ketones. That's why when you do intermittent fasting, you start to burn fat. You get skinnier because you stop using glucose. You start burning fat. And so that's also why when you're fasting, somewhere around hour 16 is the hardest part because that's when you're low on energy. It's when you start to feel dizzy because you're out of glucose. But once you tap into those ketones, you feel great and you have more energy. So anyways, I I had a meaningful and contemplative fast. I came up with lots of stuff to talk about on the podcast, so I fasted for you, for my listeners. I visited Hudson Yards this past weekend. They have an exhibit of cows. You remember those cows? It was like 20 years ago. There were these statues of cows everywhere around New York City, and they were all painted nicely to raise money for charity or something. I. I didn't quite understand it at the time. I guess it was meant to be some kind of like whimsical art installation. It didn't, it never quite hit me the same way as the gates. Remember the gates? I thought that one was way cooler. Anyways, the the cows are back or like a hundred of them are back and they have 22 of them at Hudson Yards. It's kind of a weird place to put them. I mean, they're nice. They're nicely painted, but it's just like a weird place to view them. And maybe they just need to have them someplace where there are security guards walking around. I think it would be a lot cooler if they were all in Sheep's Meadow in Central Park or someplace like that. It would just feel more interesting. And Hudson Yards, I've been there a few times now. It's horrible. It's this terrible place with these bland glass towers just surrounding a shopping mall. It has no charm, just not one iota. It's so bland. It's not in keeping with the surrounding neighborhood. It feels like blight that's just going to be there for a hundred years. And and I don't think it's any better than what was there before, which was nothing. It was blight before. And these apartments are all vacant. They're, They're vacant because they're outrageously expensive, but they're also vacant because they were never intended to be occupied. These apartments are bank accounts for Chinese people and Russian people that are trying to keep assets out of their home country. So they buy these apartments with no intention of ever using them or residing in them. But what sort of neighborhood or community is that? It's like these, the, all the super tall buildings on 57th Street. They're horrible. And I don't get why Hudson Yards is appealing at all. Like, who cares that much about living next to a Louis Vuitton store and and living a couple blocks from the Lincoln Tunnel? And why did all these companies move their offices to that area? Why did that seem like a great plan? It seems terrible. And, you know, there's a a food court in the basement of Hudson Yards that was put together by Jose Andres. And on the topic of Jose Andres, if I could nominate one person for the Nobel Peace Prize, it would be him. I think that the work that he is doing with his charity, World Central Kitchen, is incredible. See, whenever there's a natural disaster, he has his team on the ground within like a day, and they set up kitchens cooking for people that are affected by the tragedy. It's amazing the way they do it. and They, they have some sort of metrics that they track, like they want to be serving 50,000 meals a day within 48 hours or something like that. It's It's really amazing. But also, Jose Andres tweeted about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle last week. And I, I got to say, I was embarrassed for the guy and, and for his tweet. It was it was really stupid. It was fawning. I mean, I, I've said it before. Harry and Meghan are complete morons. They're very savvy. They're very successful. But they're really idiots. And, and look, you know, you may hate me, and there are many people who hate me. But you can't dispute that when I speak, I have something substantive to say and something interesting to say. And Harry and Meghan do not. I, I, you know, I watched that Oprah interview. How is it credible that they did not know that the the royal family was racist? I mean, this is the same family that had Harry's mother killed. They didn't like that she was divorcing Charles and, and dating an Arab. And so they killed her. And they made up that idiotic story about the paparazzi killing her. Who the fuck thought that was credible? So they know it's a murder family, but suddenly they're shocked by racism? That Oprah interview was awful. You know, you have the, these two idiots. There's Harry in his in his Nazi costume years ago. And now they're on, on Netflix making documentaries about kids with club feet or something. They're just grifters. And she married this ginger idiot and brought him to Malibu to make Netflix shows. And and so they just like go on Oprah and they're like, oh no, there was a noose in the bedroom. And it's just, it's all bullshit. You know, on HBO, they did this show called The Prince. It was this cartoon made by Gary Gennetti. It was brilliant. Highly recommend you watch that show. And they did such a good job of making fun of, Harry and Meghan, I mean, really of the entire, the entire family. Anyways, Hudson Yards, they have, they have that idiotic sculpture installation there, the vessel or the ship or whatever. It's hideous. And they had to close the whole, the whole installation because people kept using it for suicide. There were all these suicide people who would walk up this thing and jump off and kill themselves. And it, it's very sad. It's terrible. But first, they started putting more security guards there, but the suicide people were too fast. So then they made a rule that you couldn't go on it alone. You had to be with a buddy. But it still didn't work. And so now it's closed. Maybe it's closed forever. Look, I I say, go all in on it. Make the entire complex about suicide. Have like a Dr. Kevorkian clinic or something and make it a a suicide theme park. That'd be fun. I've had a couple of listeners who sent me messages asking about Evergrande. So I'm going to do a, a very quick primer on what's going on there. It's a situation you have to be aware of. you got to be thinking about this. Evergrande is a huge real estate developer in China. They build buildings, like big apartment buildings. And they kept borrowing money and using it to build new buildings. And then they'd sell the apartments to individuals, to families, That's all fine. They kept borrowing, and and a lot of these apartments weren't selling at the prices they wanted to get. So, Evergrande has been losing money for a long time. And I read somewhere that in total, they have somewhere around $300 billion that they've borrowed, which is just a staggering amount of money. And most of those loans came from these big Chinese banks. And the banks are mostly controlled by the Communist Party that rules China. And the whole the whole promise of the party is that they provide stability, they provide economic growth, and in exchange, just don't protest, don't expect to have freedom, but they'll keep things running smoothly. But if this entire real estate market in China is a bubble, then suddenly the promise of stability doesn't look so hot. And remember, you know, just two years ago, we had this whole fiasco of the Chinese releasing COVID into the world. So they clearly have some egg on their faces. Now, to me, I think the the parallel, the history lesson that we need to have in the, the parallel here is Lehman Brothers. You remember Lehman Brothers? In 2008, Lehman had invested in some very stupid stuff. Like they had made loans and bought loans that were really just garbage. And it was really one division of the company that was dumb enough to do this stuff. The rest of the business was fine. People were doing their jobs. And the senior management team, the board were totally asleep at the wheel. They had no idea that this one group had done all of this idiotic stuff and the extent of it. They weren't overseeing it at all. But then it turned out that the stuff that they had invested in was just garbage. And the company was insolvent because all of these big financial services firms, the way that they uh, uh, operate, they rely on a type of funding to keep the business going, where they're constantly borrowing little bits to keep the business going for a short period of time. And suddenly, they couldn't get that funding. And then they can't operate. So Lehman Brothers went to the Federal Reserve and they're like, please, sir, we fucked up. You know, Can you help us? But the Fed is really worried. They don't want to encourage what's called moral hazard, where you feel like, if I do well, I'll get a huge bonus. And if I do poorly, well, we'll get bailed out at someone else's problem. So the Fed doesn't want to encourage that, which I get. And they don't want other banks to think that they can take stupid risks. So the Fed tells Lehman, go pound sand. And Lehman's like, okay, sorry, we're bankrupt. And then everyone starts worrying about other banks, and what kind of garbage they invested in and what sort of weakness is underpinning their balance sheets. And so suddenly no one wants to provide funding to all of these other banks. And you have this domino effect. And in one weekend, do you remember this? In one weekend in September of 2008, the Fed gets all of these banks together and they realized that if they only bailed out a few banks, it's going to make the ones that got bailed out look really weak. So instead they forced every Big bank to take a huge bailout. And some of these banks were pissed, right? Jamie Dimon at JPMorgan Chase, he was pissed. He's like, look, we did a good job. We didn't invest in all this stupid stuff. We don't want your money. We don't want all this oversight and all this money. Leave us out of it. But the Fed made them do it. Now, if the Fed had just bailed out Lehman Brothers instead of letting it fail, it would have been a lot less expensive and disastrous for the world economy than what they did. But When these banks don't have any funding, when they can't operate, they don't lend money. And if they're not lending money, it becomes hard for businesses to get loans, to build new factories, to buy equipment. It becomes hard for individuals to borrow money, to start businesses, to buy houses. The entire economy starts to contract in a recession. And that's bad. People do not like recessions. And so these banks are in a tough spot. First of all, they're they're in a tough spot because like 99% of the employees there are like, we've just been doing our jobs. We're doing them well. It's this one small division that did a bad job. So please, I'd like to get paid my normal salary and bonus. And so you have the terrible optics of these giant banks getting bailed out with taxpayer money while they're paying bonuses to investment bankers. So you're taking from from the ordinary taxpayers saying, we got to do this. It's important for the entire country. And then you're paying some of that money out to these rich investment bankers. Why the fuck should the rest of America be funding that? That is not a good look. So with that that history lesson in mind of what happened, let's return to Evergrande. So Evergrande has $300 billion in debt. I read one report that said that, that $37 billion of that has to be repaid within the next year. They've stopped paying interest on all the the money that they've borrowed. So if some meaningful portion of that $300 billion of debt is not going to be repaid, these banks are in big trouble because the banks that loan money to them are suddenly going to have huge losses. They're going to have very high leverage and they're going to become insolvent and they are going to stop lending money and the entire Chinese economy will contract and will go into a recession. That means that other companies that depend on them to borrow aren't going to be able to operate. No one's going to be building new property because they can't borrow money to finance it. There won't be demand for steel and iron ore and copper. It'll have huge knock-on effects for the rest of the world economy. Now, a lot of folks have known about this for a while. This isn't like a huge surprise to, to many people. But the stock market got clobbered yesterday. And I guess it really depends what you think will happen now. Is the Chinese government going to look at Evergrande and treat it like the Fed treated Lehman Brothers and tell them they can go fuck themselves and it's their problem and let them fail? Or is the Chinese government going to step in and bail out Evergrande? So, like, I I don't know what happens now. Does the entire Chinese economy head towards a recession? Does the the Communist Party learn from the Lehman Brothers situation and realize that they need to intervene and do it in this controlled way so it doesn't have effects on the rest of the world? I, I don't know. If I had to guess, I think the party will intervene. They'll probably let a bunch of folks take a big haircut and stew on it for a bit. And then they'll intervene, but that is a very low confidence prediction. I I don't feel certain about that at all. And things could get worse before they get better. But if they're going to intervene, they really need to make a clear message on how any of the problems at Evergrande are going to be ring fenced from causing a spillover, both a financial spillover and a real spillover into the broader economy. It's time for a quick word from our sponsor. I love podcasts. You love podcasts. Osama bin Laden loved podcasts, I think. He was a big true crime buff. And I published the Lee show using Anchor. I think it's a great service. I tested out a number of options. This was clearly the best. They have great sound quality. It's the same company. Anchor is made by the same company that created the weapons that cause Havana syndrome. How cool is that? And it's owned by Spotify as part of their quest to destroy Neil Young. Anchor provides the tools that let you record and edit from your phone, from your computer. I record my audio. I upload it and distribute it to all the major podcasting platforms. It's very easy. They'll get you on Spotify. They'll get you on Apple Podcasts, all the leading players. And you can make big bucks. So download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm. To get started, there's this phenomenon that psychologists study called apophenia. And it was first identified in the late 1950s by a psychiatrist named Klaus Conrad. And apophenia is when you start to see connections in things that are not connected, It's, it's the tendency to perceive a connection or a pattern in unrelated things, whether it's an object, in an idea. A simple example is looking at the stars. They're just random points of light, but yet we see a lion or a donkey or whatever. Or when you look at a cloud and you see a face or a shape, or you look at the moon and you see a a face or something in it. In statistics, it's called a type one error. It's when you believe that there is a pattern in the data, but in fact, it isn't a real pattern. And in some situations, you would call that a false positive, like there's a false positive of seeing a pattern in the data. Uh, Hockey players who don't change their underwear during the playoffs, in a sense, that's apophenia, right? I I wore the blue underpants and we won the game. Therefore, we won because of my underpants. You're seeing a connection when there is no connection there. My great-grandmother, great grand, Yeah, my great-grandmother used to talk about her sister who ate red cabbage and then went crazy. And so for like a 100 years, no one in my family ate red cabbage because they were taught that it makes you crazy. And this, this feeling alone can drive you insane. If you start to see connections and things everywhere, it'll haunt you. And you start to feel very isolated because you're the only one who sees these patterns because they're not really there and that'll drive you nuts. And you start thinking you're the only one who can see the true nature of things. You're the only one who sees the matrix. That's a terrible feeling and, and it's very isolating. It's, it's I think, related to solipsism. Solipsism is the belief that the rest of the world isn't real, that you're the only real thing in it. And if you start to believe that you're the only one who understands the world, you're going to start to to develop this point of view that the world revolves around you, and it's also closely related to conspiratorial thinking because when you start to see, or or, or think you see a connection or a plot that doesn't exist because you see a pattern, that's really dangerous. Now, it's not to say that there aren't conspiratorial things going on, people. Working to try to trick someone else for their own benefit, or to do things—we we see it plenty. But the real, the real, the real trick is being able to tell which ones are real, and which ones are just in your imagination. And it's easy to confuse them. I was in synagogue a lot the past couple of weeks for Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Kippur, Sukkot is starting now, and I was thinking a lot about how religion is a form of apophenia some of its the superstitious aspect of it like the if i don't eat pork then i'll have a good life or if i listen to the pope then good things happen astrology is also a form of apophenia the superstitious belief that the movement of stars can influence human events i mean it's it's they're clearly unrelated but many people believe that they are connected and there's a really fine line here Because seeing patterns and recognizing patterns is part of what makes us intelligent beings. Like We go to school and we study and we learn to recognize patterns. And I'm a big believer in the importance of this. I think pattern recognition allows us to predict the future. And it ties into something. It's a really important concept called Bayesian reasoning. And Bayesian reasoning is the idea in statistics of understanding how much weight to assign to new data. The true definition of it is understanding the probability that something is true from a certain piece of evidence. Imagine that you drop a pebble 50 times and each time it falls to the ground. And so you conclude that if you drop a pebble, it will fall to the ground and that gravity is real. And then on the 51st time, you let go of the pebble and it just floats. It doesn't drop. So do you ignore the 51st time and conclude that it's a fluke and that gravity is real? Do you ignore the first 50 times and only pay attention to the 51st? And Bayesian logic is the process of deciding how much to weight that 51st data point, that aberration, and decide whether that deserves a lot of importance or no importance in your prediction of the future machine learning we hear a lot about machine learning machine learning is largely based on this concept of taking various data points and forming a model and a regression that will make predictions about new data points that's what it is it's regressions and when we when we read when we study when we learn much of what we are striving for as individuals is to improve our ability to perform logic in our own heads. We understand how to live in the world because we understand that when when X occurs, Y is the likely result. And we study history to understand the past. When X happened, here was the result. And then we learn to look for X in the future and to match it to that, that model, that mental regression. We read books to help us with this. A lot of people like to read nonfiction because they find essays or ideas that help them think about particular concepts. I don't find that to be a good use of my time. When I read nonfiction, my first thought is always like, yeah, I I know. I can get all of it from the book jacket. So I I much prefer to read fiction. I want to read great literature from the 18th century, from the 19th century. I think that's the best way to learn. Because I think that those – the authors of those books, Victor Hugo and Tolstoy, and they, they understood people. They made real characters in their books. They understood people and how they behave and their emotions. And they wrote about them in real ways. Jealousy, anger, revenge, love. I mean, there's only so many different types of emotions and stories in the world. And they understood them. And if you understand people, you'll understand how people will behave. And so you you can figure out that, that mental regression model to understand how to predict the future. And doesn't all of that feed into being a good leader? Because it makes you a visionary, right? Having a vision for the future. And having that vision means incorporating a sense of the present, And understanding what that means for the future means predicting things. There's something, one of the first books that truly influenced me was The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. And I read it because in the summer of 1997, I was on a summer program and there was a girl on my trip who I had a huge crush on and she was reading The Fountainhead. She was like three years older than me and she was smart and I had a crush and she was reading it. And said it was great. And so, as soon as I got home from the summer program, I immediately got a copy of *The Fountainhead* and started reading it. And I was captivated. When I finished it, I immediately got a copy of *Atlas Shrugged*. That's her other book, and I I just devoured it. And I became obsessed with Ayn Rand's ideas. I read all of her lesser works and her letters that had been accumulated into book form. I I mean, I was a sophomore in high school, and I was incredibly suggestible. And she had these ideas about objectivism and individualism, and they were so strong and so compelling. And I walked around school spouting all of her ideas like a parrot. And in one interview with her that I read, she was asked, what's the most influential uh, uh, book for her, or the most influential author? And she named Victor Hugo. And I The only thing I was familiar with by Victor Hugo was Les Mis. I had seen the Broadway musical when I was younger. I'd listened to the music, but that was the extent of my knowledge of the story. So I decided if this book was influential for my literary idol, then I should go and read it. So I got a a copy of the Penguin Classics edition translated by Norman Denny, and I read it. And thank goodness... I read that book when I did because I was still suggestible enough and my mind was still pliable enough. And Victor Hugo's ideas were such a counterweight to Ayn Rand. He was a humanist and he made heroes out of characters who were selfless and kind. And I realized that there was this world of ideas and knowledge and books that was vast and that I didn't need to pigeonhole myself into one philosophy. Or worldview. And I realized that Ayn Rand provided a lot of the intellectual underpinnings of all kinds of movements and people, social Darwinism and all sorts of other uh, you know, garbage. But there were other ideas out there that I could immerse myself in and learn to counteract this kind of drivel. And reading this stuff and thinking carefully about them, it taught me to think for myself, to think critically, not to just absorb whatever was spoon-fed to me. Now I can you know with, with the the benefit of of distance, I've reread Atlas Shrugged and realized its flaws in the writing and the ideas. I mean, the writing is is childish it's everything's black and white, there's heroes and antiheroes, and there's no room for subtlety or gray area. It's so boring, and you know i i I see it in some young people that I know that they catch on to some idea on social media or otherwise. And it's catchy and it sticks. And then that's it. They never learn to counterbalance it. They never learn a different approach. And then they end up believing some sort of bullshit that they picked up on social media for life. That's dangerous. But to me, this is reading these great books, that's that's important. That's how you learn to understand and predict things. You know, I've I've met lots of business leaders and important people. And they say that Atlas Shrugged is their favorite favorite book. And it's like, I immediately discount everything the person says after that. As soon as someone tells me that's their favorite book, as soon as they tell me how influenced they were by Atlas Shrugged, you just immediately know this is not a sophisticated thinker. This is a dum-dum. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Instagram at the Lee show podcast. You can find me on Twitter, On Substack, read my essays. Pay me money. Sign up as a subscriber to the show. Please do that. Recommend this to your friends and colleagues. And I will be back with more soon.